This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Well, let's talk about civility in this country. What do you think it's like now compared to, say, five years ago? Well, research company run by Mario Conseco did a survey about this, and they came up with some pretty interesting results. 52% of the Canadians they surveyed think that people in this country have become less polite than they were five years ago. Only 8% thought that people were more polite than in 2014, and about 33% said they feel like it's about the same. But here's the thing. 84% of the people, so that's more than four and five of the people that they surveyed, think that parents are failing to teach their children proper behavior and that they are definitely or probably responsible for the current state of civility in this country. Also, we had to use this, right, for our hot question of the day today. We're going to talk to Mario Conseco about this later as well. But we want to know, compared to five years ago, do you think Canada is more polite, about the same, or less polite? What do you think of the state of civility in our country? Go online to Simisara980 to cast your vote. You can also go to at CKNW. You can email me, Simi at CKNW.com. I'm sure you've got thoughts on it. Come on. We've talked about this before. Uh, you know, simple things, being polite, saying thank you, maybe uh, not getting angry at somebody for no reason in traffic, you know, stuff like that. Are we more or less polite than we were five years ago? Use our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ, 331-2899. And you know what would be great if you used our buzz line today? to tell us a story, maybe a nice story. Like, did somebody do something nice for you? Is there a a good moment, a polite moment that you had with somebody, a civil moment that you had that you can tell us a story about? I'm sure there'll be no shortage of the opposite of that, the negative stories as well. But let's hear some stories out there from people about the state of civility in our country. That way we can share them with everybody else. Do you think Facebook is protecting your privacy? Because the privacy commissioner in Ottawa doesn't think so. He says he's taking Facebook to court to actually enforce privacy laws. Uh, This follows, of course, that major leak of personal data that was later used for all sorts of political purposes. But essentially what turned into hundreds of Canadians taking a personality quiz ended up being hundreds of thousands of Canadians whose personal information was compromised as a result of that. The app was called This Is Your Digital Life, and that was an outside app, but Facebook essentially allowed it to access all sorts of personal information, some of which was shared with others. So part of this report today had privacy commissioners from other parts of the country involved, including BC's Information and Privacy Commissioner, and that's Michael McAvoy, and he joins us now to talk more about this. Thanks so much for being here. You're very welcome. So does this report kind of build on what you have been talking about as well? It very much does. Um, People will know about the Cambridge Analytica Facebook uh, scandal that broke out globally, but it has a very much a Canadian, and it turns out a British Columbia component, 660,000 Canadians' data was uh, swept up uh, in in that uh, data vacuum. That included about 92,000 British Columbians who were affected. Um, these were folks who had no idea, unsuspectingly, uh, taken in because uh, their friends uh, may have gone on to This Is Your Digital Life app. And so, as we know, uh, a lot of that data was used, uh, particularly in the U.S., um, used to psychologically profile people. Um, we wanted to get uh, get a handle on the Canadian aspect of it, and uh, that I think we've done. Uh, there's clearly been violations of both uh, the federal law and also British Columbia's Personal Information Protection Act. What I think, though, this investigation points out is the need for much, much stronger regulatory teeth given to uh, 
to uh, myself and our office in British Columbia, as well as um, uh, across the country, because uh, I think the public uh, depends on, on us to make sure that we've got their back and that their data is being properly protected. Right now, we have uh, nothing in the way, for example, of uh, finding power that other authorities have uh, globally, which acts as a deterrent to some of these practices that we've seen in this investigation. So what ha- like when you say data was swept up, what does that mean for people? Well, um, what happened in this case, with this is your digital life app, is that uh, I think roughly about 200,000 people went online, they filled out a survey, uh, they gave away their Facebook uh, data. Uh, there are, and even those people who gave it up didn't properly understand what the ramifications were. But not only did those folks give up their data, they gave up the data through that of their friends who had no idea that those users were uh, giving up their data. So that's how we get from 200,000 people to having the data of the friends, which amounts to many, many millions, more than 50 million across uh, the world. Um, All kinds of information from date of birth, messaging, habits, all kinds of different things uh, that were swept up and used for for analytic uh, purposes. So that's, that's that's what basically what happened. Wow. So when you tried to talk to Facebook about this and say, hey, listen, this is unacceptable, what happened? Well, uh, Facebook, I'm going to say it this way, talks a good game. And certainly they have, uh, over the last decade when these kinds of things arise, uh, they've expressed uh, some sorrow, uh, apologies, uh, attempts to do things better, that they're concerned about people's privacy. But when push comes to shove, uh, and as we found in this case, they were unwilling to agree to Uh, several recommendations which we thought were common sense. For example, I mentioned all of these people whose data had been swept up. Tell people. Notify those people about that. Uh, They said that that was not something that they they could do. Uh, We've asked them to uh, more actively monitor those applications uh, that go onto the Facebook platform, looking at their privacy policies, making sure that they're actually in accordance with what Facebook's policies are, Uh, Facebook invites all these applications onto their platform. Surely they should be responsible for making sure that these these applications have proper privacy policies in place. And so when they said, I mean, this this is something we can't do, I mean, of course they can do that, right? I mean, they have the ability to do that. Uh, This is one of the the wealthiest corporations in the entire world. Uh, They they certainly, we believe, have the uh, ability to do this. Uh, They have told us in some respects it's impractical. Uh, without providing us any evidence that, in fact, that is the case. Um, uh, it's just um, there is a certain level, I think, of, uh, of arrogance. And, uh, and this is why I think regulators uh, in Canada and certainly other places need proper uh, regulations that have real teeth to them that uh, are, make us able to uh, bring these companies to account. Is the tide changing, do you think? I mean, all countries all over the world are talking about, look what they're trying in the UK, right? They really want to bring uh, social media companies to account for all of this information. Is the tide changing? Is regulation, do you think, inevitable? Yes, I think the tide is changing. You know, oddly enough, Mark Zuckerberg himself was advocating for greater regulation uh, globally uh, along the standards of what's happening in Europe. Uh, there, there are very stringent uh, uh, consent requirements uh, to make sure before any data is shared that it has the consent of the user, significant uh, fine powers that are given to uh, administrators or uh, uh, regulators in Europe. 
in the United States, so to the border. Uh, listeners may have heard the story yesterday. Uh, the Facebook announced that it's putting aside 3 to $5 billion as a possible fine that might be leveled by the Federal Trade wow. Commission. So Canada is falling behind. This is not a problem that's going to be fixed exclusively in Washington nor in Europe. Canada has to have its own solutions, and that means both at a federal level and a provincial level. And nobody else is going to look after British Columbians, but... Uh, but regulators in British Columbia working with others. So we need those kind of uh, regulatory powers that are starting to uh, uh, find themselves brought into place around the globe. And is that, do you think, is there an appetite for that among politicians, among the government here in Canada? Um, I think that's beginning to happen. Uh, part of this investigation today and announce, uh, making this announcement is, is, is about uh, alerting the public more to this challenge and problem. Uh, which in turn gets politicians interested. So um, I spend a lot of my time talking to elected officials in Victoria about these issues. I think uh, many of them do understand some of the challenges and issues, and I will be continuing to press them for reform on behalf of British Columbians. Now, what would you tell people, Mr. McAvoy? Like, can Facebook be trusted with our personal information? Um, I, they are definitely pushing the, the borders of that, and I think this investigation reveals that. Uh, uh, Facebook needs to do, I think, a lot to get the public's trust back. And I think their CEO, Mark Zuckerberg, has uh, acknowledged that fact, uh, that they require uh, the public's trust in order to operate. We are social human beings. We spend much of our time online these days. And frankly, if you want to connect with your friends, uh, Facebook is pretty close to the only game in town. So they have a particularly significant responsibility uh, to make sure that they are properly handling the data of uh, their users. Uh, that is uh, almost probably most of the people out there listening to us this afternoon and this morning. It's so cynical to think, though, that they're putting aside billions of dollars, isn't it, to pay a fine? Uh, and what they think that's just going to make everything better? No. So it's going to take, it's a very good point, and it's going to take more than fining power. It's going to also take uh, a regulatory order making authority, which gives uh, basically the, the ability to, to make them change their ways, because uh, it's going to have to be more than money. Uh, even for a company like Facebook, $5 billion sounds like a lot of money. I think they have something like $40 billion cash sitting in their bank account. So yeah. uh, it cannot, it's got to be something more than just a license to carry on uh, doing what they're doing. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time on this today. You're very welcome. Appreciate that. That's Michael McAvoy. He's the BC's Information and Privacy Commissioner. Yeah, South Africa is marking quite a milestone this week. It was 25 years ago that the first true democratic elections were held in that country. That was the first time citizens of all races were actually allowed to take part. It was just 25 years ago. Now, this, of course, came after years and years of struggle for recognition, and it marked a huge turning point in the history of that country. Well, national video journalist for Global News, Alia Adam, traveled to the country to take a look at the impact of those elections and to explore some of the lesser-known history of other populations that were caught in the middle of apartheid. She joins us now to tell us more of that story. Tell us about your trip to South Africa. What is it like there now? Well, South Africa is a beautiful country and there's so, so much history there. Um, when I traveled there last August, I was specifically in Durban, which is a beach town on the East Coast. Uh, and it has a really massive Indian population there. And actually, South Africa has the largest concentration of Indians outside of India. So I really wanted to tell their stories because I feel like that's, like you said, a, a very a lesser known story that Indians were actually caught in the middle 
of apartheid, and they were also uh, considered non-white, obviously, during that era. So, how did they come? How did there come to be such a sizable Indian population in South Africa? Well, that goes back centuries. I mean, after uh, slavery was abolished in Britain, they invented, they reinvented uh, slavery, calling it indentured labor. And uh, a lot of Indians were kidnapped or promised uh, that they would have a better life in South Africa. But in fact, they were forced to work in really awful conditions in sugar plantations. And they were bound by a five-year contract that put them there. And after the five-year contract, a lot of them couldn't afford to go back to India. And many, about 60% actually stayed in South Africa and, and build a community there from, from there. And that from there, the population really grew. So how were they then treated during apartheid? Because we tend to think of that as kind of black versus white. Was there another class created or were they all lumped in together? Like, how did that work? So the white government uh, created the Race Classification Act and they put people actually in four different categories. White was obviously on the top, European, followed by Indian, colored or what was of mixed descent, and then black was on on the bottom. So the idea was really to just to pin the different races against each other by also subtly giving them each more privileges than the other. So uh, the black population would actually resent the Indian population because they were given more privileges. And instead of combining their fight against the government at the time, they, they there was a lot of tension between the two races. And it took decades for them to actually realize that, you know what, this is a joint struggle. And the only way we're going to bring down this government is if we come together and and do it together. Interesting. So was that, would you say, like a, a, a more recent development in South African history? Well, actually, Gandhi was the one who first uh, went to South Africa and and saw that, you know, segregation and um, discrimination was a big issue, especially against Indians at the time. And that, of course, was immortalized in, in the famous film, the Gandhi movie, yeah. uh, where he was that moment where he was thrown off the train that was actually in South Africa. And he had a first class ticket on that train, but he was in a whites only cart and he refused to move. He it was passive resistance. That was the birth of passive resistance. And that type of protest is what inspired a lot of activists decades later during the apartheid era. Um, and, and like I said, it took it took quite some time before um, uh, Nelson Mandela and Ahmed Kathrada, they were both part of the ANC, decided that they needed to come together and, and fight the government as a joint alliance. And they did that beginning with the defiance uh, protest in 1953, where they passively resisted the, the laws, the segregation laws. So non-whites would enter white areas, sit on white benches, go to white bathrooms. And obviously that caused a, an uprising and, and a lot of violence, uh, from the, from the apartheid era police officers and many people were arrested. But it just went to show that the two races, all the races, uh, could combine their fight and, and be stronger in that way. 
Interesting. Okay, so you're exploring a lot of this in your series that can be found online. Uh, what did you learn? Like, are there lesser known kind of heroes on the Indian side of the story as well? Well, that's just as I mentioned, Amikathrada is was one of Nelson Mandela's closest friends till till Nelson Mandela's dying day. They were they were very close friends. And it's not very well known, but Amikathrada spent much of the time in prison. He also spent 27 years in prison and a lot of it was us with Nelson Mandela on Robben Island. So their friendship really grew after that joint um, alliance that they they decided on, and they they just um, you know they stayed yeah. very close together throughout the years. Is that something that's recognized in South Africa as part of the history, or is it kind of not as well known as obviously the story of Nelson Mandela? Well, actually, Amikathrada is is very well known in South Africa. There are schools and street names and statues and and foundations under his name. It, it was really here in the Western side that I realized that those stories hadn't been told as much as the others. And when I was pitching the story, actually, a lot of my colleagues had no idea that Indians were part of this struggle at all. Interesting. So that is that becoming better known then, do you think, outside of South Africa now as well? Well, hopefully with uh, with stories like this that I that I publish and, and more and more um, awareness about all the people that were were held back due to the apartheid. Um, hopefully the stories will uh, will grow. Yeah. What is the struggle like today, though, Alia? Because I'm sure it, it's not a perfect situation, right? South Africa still struggles and there's still a lot of problems there. Of course. And I mean, I spoke to a lot of experts about 25 years later looking at South Africa. Is it really the rainbow nation that Mandela envisioned? And and it's very hard because uh, South Africa was under this apartheid for over 50 years. And even before apartheid was officially implemented, they were uh, the black South Africans were already being uh, restricted in in land ownership, and so this is something that they're going to have to fight for decades to come. And a lot of people, a lot of experts, agreed that it's going to be up to the next generations to be able to bridge those gaps. And of course, you know that's that's just one issue. the The corruption in the government is another issue. The poverty is another issue. So there's just so much that the country has to deal with. And and it just it's not I mean, it's sad because they were held back for so long and now they're they're playing catch up, essentially. Yeah, a lot of catch up. All right. So thank you so much for telling us about this story. Thank you. And of course, the the videos will all be live on our our Global News YouTube channel. So you can check them out all there. That's Aaliyah Adam, national video journalist for Global News. And for more on her special series, you can check out the website globalnews.ca. Well, we do love to talk about real estate and really the changing real estate market that we have here in this province, trying to figure out what's going on out there. Which way is it headed? Well, here's an interesting twist to all of this. I read the story in the Star Metro newspaper today about a condo project in Coquitlam. And get this, they they want to entice more younger, like millennial home buyers to buy one of their 116 units. So how are they doing that? What kind of incentive are they providing? Well, first of all, they're reducing the down payment that is needed to buy one. You know, usually you'd say 15, 20%, that kind of thing. But at this particular project, they're saying, hey, 
10% is good to get in here. And then the price. They're selling these condos for around $400,000. And on top of all of that, and this sounds just so gimmicky to me, uh, they're going to give the buyers a full year supply of avocado toast. And listen, given the price of avocados these days, that could add up for the developers. And we just thought it's really interesting to see that some property developers are having to do stuff like this. It used to be all they had to do was put up a sign, right? Open an office and people would line up outside to buy their condos. Clearly, that is not the case anymore. So we wanted to talk about the state of the market right now with the help of Steve Soretsky, Vancouver Realtor and Real Estate Analyst. Steve, thanks so much for being back here. Yeah, no worries. My pleasure. Are, are you hearing some stories like this? Uh, yeah, I mean, the incentives are increasing. Um, a lot of decorating allowances, realtor bonuses, uh, different sort of giveaways, uh, price reductions. Yeah, so the, the landscape's definitely shifted in the pre-sale market. Interesting. So are the prices coming down here as well? Uh, yeah, you're seeing a little bit of price. I mean, that's kind of the last thing the developer wants to do, right? I mean, they want to maintain the, you know, at least the illusion that the market is kind of, you know, stronger and, and that, you know, the prices aren't really dropping. Like, especially if you've, um, you know, if you've pre-sold a bunch of people in already, like the last thing that you want to do is, is start dropping the prices once people have already bought in. So, um, typically what they'll do is they'll offer incentives and, uh, and that sort of thing before that. Yeah, that is the case, I guess, because there must be quite a few pre-sold developments out there that probably sold when the market was at its height a couple of years ago. Are they all coming online now? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, you had a lot of stuff that basically pre-sold. Um, you know, a lot of those people are, are locked in with contracts. And and so, I mean, that's not the, I guess, I mean, some of those people are obviously trying to get out of contracts now with, with uh, trying to assign them and flip them. And, and that's becoming a lot more challenging in this market, um, you know, with with sales condo sales being at uh, near 20 year lows that you know buyers have a lot more options to choose from so they're a little bit more hesitant to to look at an assignment where you know you have an unfinished unit and you're basically just buying a piece of paper um there's a lot more uncertainty there right what is the first time home buyer situation like right now uh to me it seems kind of slow i mean i guess it's more anecdotal so i can't really speak for everybody um i find that people that are making moves right now in the market seem to be people that are already uh, you know, have some equity in the market um, that, um, you know, are, are looking to live in it for, for long-term primary residence sort of thing. So I think the investors, a lot of the investors have stepped to the sidelines as well. Right. Because there were a lot of projects that were in the pipeline too, weren't they, Steve? Like a lot of condo projects that were getting ramped up or proposals were made at the height of the market. Are they still going ahead or have things backed off? Uh, you're starting to hear some developers that are shelving projects. I mean, I mean, the reality is, is investors make up over 50% of, of purchasers uh, in pre-sale buildings, right? So, I mean, majority of these people that buy that are buying into pre-sale, they're not end users; they're basically investors. And and given the you know the amount the the premium that developers have been charging over the last couple of years, uh, reality is, is a lot of these people are just you know speculating on on rising prices and and obviously the market's not rising; it's actually coming down. So that's discouraged a lot of uh, of these investors to buy in. And obviously, like I said earlier, that, you know, a lot of them are trying to get out. And so you know, developers are going you know, to certainly face some closing challenges, I think, uh, in, in the months ahead. Oh, really? So are developers also, do you think, going back to building some of these units in these buildings for people to actually live there and not just investors? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously challenging. It depends on the developer and when they purchase the land and, and how much margin they have to actually lower prices to incentivize, you know, um, 
end users. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely a changing environment. So it really just comes down. I mean, um, you know, a lot of it's reflected in construction costs. You're starting to hear some construction costs are starting to ease a little bit, so that should help. But um, yeah, it's a huge, uh, huge shift. What are you seeing out there? Like, what are you, what is selling? Uh, well priced, uh, well priced condos in a you know with a view or in a very desirable location. Um, again, it has to be well priced. Like, and I think buyers are becoming picky. Where if it's not in a great location, if it's an older building, uh, they're they're really shying away from that. So, um, yeah, that's kind of what I'm seeing. Is it still like definitely a buyer's market out there? Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I think we'll see April numbers will come in uh, again, very similar to to March figures. So you'll probably have thirty year lows uh, in, in April. So uh, it's sort of a continuation of the trend, but that's sort of to be expected in real estate. I mean, you, you know, real estate is not like in a stock market. Once you have a trend in place, it tends to be a, a prolonged trend, and you know you don't just go from a thirty year low uh, in home sales in March to all of a sudden back to normal levels in April. So yeah, that's true. Um, Any advice uh, out there, see for people then who might think about getting into the market? Like, should they be looking for these incentives, and how do you find them? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I think there's going to be some opportunities. Um, for people trying to exit pre-sale contracts, uh, people that uh, again don't have the financial capacity to even close on these pre-sale obligations, so we're definitely seeing an uptick in uh, MLS listings for assignments that are basically trying to sell them at cost that they bought, you know, a year or two years ago. Um, so there's definitely some opportunities there um, for some buyers. Interesting. All right. Thank you so much for your time, Steve. Yeah, no worries. My pleasure. That is Steve Soretsky, who's a Vancouver realtor and real estate analyst. All right. Let's talk about TransLink and bus service and just getting around here uh, in Metro Vancouver in particular. It can be tough, right? Buses are crowded. Lots of people have been using it. In fact, transit ridership has gone way up. They've been talking about this at a TransLink meeting going on right now. And their numbers show that in 2018, they even though they added something like 75,000 annual bus service hours, they're still seeing huge increases in bus boarding. Surrey and Delta in particular saw an increase of 16.7% and 16.3% respectively. That is unreal. Nine of the top 10 bus routes ranked by annual boardings are also in the city of Vancouver. And the growth has just been huge for people getting on the bus. No surprise to anybody who takes transit to get to work every day, like our producer, Claire Allen, who joins us now. Hi. Hello, Simi. So you used to be a bus rider. Yeah, I used to be a bus and SkyTrain rider, and now I just take the Canada line, so it's much easier. It's easier, Mm -hmm. but how crowded is it? Uh, The Canada line is actually quite crowded every morning, and I know they've spoken about, or at least I've heard people speak about the need for more uh, cars or more trains. I mean, it still is quite a frequent service, but you're like we're jammed on that train at around like 8 a.m it's really busy which i know is peak time but um yeah it's very very busy like that when you go home too no not as bad but um busy busy and uh my fiance says the same thing because he comes home more around like the six o'clock hour it's very busy as well so at least it shows that more people are 
taking transit. Definitely. And like you said, there's been a lot of growth with uh, it, with the transit, um, with numbers of people taking transit and adding new car, or new buses or new cars to trains and stuff like that. But with all that growth comes more complaints. <laughs> I'm, I'm not surprised by this because you used to ride the bus. Yeah. Was there a lot to complain about when you rode the bus? Um, thankfully, my route, although it was quite busy, I took the number three down Main Street to the uh, the uh, terminal, uh, the SkyTrain at... Uh, Main Street? Ont- yeah, Main and Terminal. That's Thank what I'm trying to say. Thank you. Uh, and it was very busy, but um, I wouldn't say it was anything I ever complained about. However... What's interesting is I have complained about buses before, just questions, more so questions. I'm not going to say I'm a big complainer, but I had questions for really? TransLink. You're not going to say you're a big complainer? Maybe not about this, Simi. But, um, <laughs> so apparently TransLink said that it received about approximately 300,000 complaints about just buses last year. Wow. So not SkyTrain, not Canada Line, just buses. And so... Um, the routes that received the most complaints will start at number one. It was the Scott Road Station Newton Exchange, which is the um, for Surrey North Delta. I went on Twitter to see what people were saying, what they were complaining about in regards to these specific routes. So for for three nineteen, which is Scott Road Station. The biggest complaint was overcrowding. People want to see this route be made into a beeline. And they also said that um, more buses should be added to the route. So if we're not going to do a beeline, can we get more buses? And it's interesting because according to TransLink, the 319 route saw the second largest growth in ridership, about 1.23 million more rides. I'm sorry, more rides? Yeah, isn't that crazy? A million more rides. Yes, and that's a 24% increase in 2018 compared to the previous year, 2017. In one year? Yeah. It saw a 24% increase in the number of people riding it it's crazy so i have i have not been on that route before but um yeah the overcrowding was a huge issue that people were talking about on social media saying they're passing buses were passing them by that you can't get a seat south of the fraser man they need more buses exactly exactly so the next um the next route that received the most complaints was 116 edmund station metrotown station burnaby so um the biggest complaints were passing by without stopping which is super frustrating is that when the bus is full the yeah bus i mean Usually that's why they pass by, but people were upset because they see a ton of them going by, right? And so, what are they supposed to do? I don't know, but it is frustrating. No, I mean, what are the passengers supposed to do, right? Like you're waiting. What's the driver supposed to do if there's no room, right? Like it's a really it's unfortunate situation. And then um, another complaint was that those buses are not on schedule. So that was also another complaint that we saw in the third ranked highest complaint, which was a four ten route four ten Richmond Breakhouse Station. Uh, to 22nd, uh, 22nd Street Station, Richmond, New Westminster. Never on schedule. Complaints of waiting hours for a bus. Hours. Yeah. Have you noticed how, how many of these were connected, though, to a SkyTrain station? Right? Scott Road Station, mm-hmm. Metrotown Station, mm-hmm. 22nd Street Station, Brighouse Station. Yeah. That's the top four, top five Main yeah. Street Station. Yeah. All have to do with SkyTrain. So SkyTrain is so busy, too, and you're yeah. filtering people onto the bus, and the bus just doesn't have the same capacity. Exactly. And you're right. Those would be major transit hubs. So, of course. Yeah. So the next um, the next, the next station that got them, or the next bus route that got the most of uh, highest complaints was Main Street Station, Beach Ave, Route two, uh, 023. And this is where the complaints got a little different. Oh. These were complaints of the bus not being clean. Oh. Were complaints about, you know, drinks spilled down the aisle. And you know what's pretty funny? When I was going through the Twitter complaints, guess who complained? Someone you might know. Drex. What? He's, yeah, he's on there. Our Drex? There's a registered complaint about Route 023. Really? Yeah. So apparently there's a lot of issues with just cleanliness on the bus, which I have been on buses before where there have been like drinks spilled in the aisle, 
But it makes the floor sticky. That's gross. I know, or like a bad smell or something on the bus. But I mean, I I'm not exactly sure. I I would love to know about what a bus what a bus driver can do in that situation. Nothing. But, nothing. They can't clean it. They gotta no, wait. Exactly. So I think it's. I don't know. It's unfortunate that accents do happen and maybe people should keep that in mind instead of just tweeting, translink, or calling, or writing, yeah, whatever like they do. Yeah, the bus driver, is it's not their vehicle. Like, it's not their... Yeah. Like, they can't stop the vehicle and clean and it. Mop up. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they've got a schedule to keep and exactly. they've got people on the bus. Like, what are they supposed to do? And then if you if they were to stop and complain, then Somebody people... would stop and complain about that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, um, anyway, huh. so the next one was... Uh, Crescent Beach, Route 351. This is Crescent Beach, Bridgeport Station, White Rock Delta, Richmond. Complaints that the bus never showed up, overcrowding, and also uncleanliness as well. That is a very, that's a long express route, right? Because Mm -hmm. they they pick up at Crescent Beach and they go all the way to Brickhouse Station. That bus used to come downtown before Canada Line. Mm -hmm. And it's always been an express bus. And I can see that that would be incredibly busy. That park and ride now that they pick up people from is like hugely packed. Yeah, exactly. So... If your bus does not show up, that's obviously a huge issue because it doesn't seem like there's not a lot of like well, it's you your say, work. It's, a, it's yeah. your work. It's a it's a bus that's a very long a long service line, and there probably aren't that many buses that are coming. It's not going to come every five minutes. No. Like if you're here in Vancouver, if you're on the Broadway corridor, yeah, great. Yeah, there's another bus probably every five, five minutes. minutes. Away. Yeah, yeah, exactly. or two minutes because there's so many different numbers. But you're stuck out there. You're waiting for the next three fifty one. It could be like half an hour or longer. Right. You. Exactly. And so for the next uh, couple of buses that we have in a row here, the the routes that got complaints, which is zero four nine Metrotown Station Dunbar Loop. Uh, 240 15th Street, Vancouver, uh, 335 Newton Surrey Central Station, and 100, oh, which is 20, 100. Yes, which is the 20 street, 22nd Street Station, Marple Loop. All those buses, the, the complaints were delays. Delay, delay, delay. People are wow, waiting, people... just wanting to get on the bus, wanting to get where they're going, and the bus isn't there. See, you want us to take the bus, we'll take the bus. But you yeah. got to make sure the bus is available. That's the big trick, Exactly. Right? So hopefully that will change. We will see about that. Do you think that we are more polite today than we were five years ago? Or do you think we are less civil to each other? I have to tell you, the less civil choice is definitely the more popular one today on our hot question of the day. And the reason why we have been talking about this is that the research company, the polling company, they actually asked people about this. They did a survey on it. And they found that people definitely feel like we are not as nice to each other as we were five years ago. So we thought, let's dive into this a little bit deeper. Mario Conseco joins us now, president of the research company. Hi, Mario. Hi, Timmy. It's great to be here. Nice to have you back. Okay, so what did you look at here? What did you ask people? Well, we had a couple of things we wanted to look into. One of them was whether they actually perceive that there's a decline of civility when it comes to the way Canadians are dealing with each other on a daily basis, whether we're saying please and thank you as often. And also why that could be the case. What is having that influence in the way that we're dealing with each other that is making people believe that we're losing our sense of civility? All right. What did people tell you? Well, the first thing they did is uh, 52% of Canadians uh, told us that they believe that people in Canada have become less polite than they were five years ago. Uh, There's a reason we chose five years as the threshold. If you go 10, 15, 20, 25 you get a lot of people who say, oh, those were the golden days, things were great, <laughs> no, they weren't. <laughs> being happy with each other. I guess we had other uh, types of things where we weren't as polite as we probably could have been. But we thought five years was a good time because we've had the explosion of social media, we've had very negative uh, political campaigns, we've had a, a change in the way censorship guidelines work on television and movies, and now more uh, swear words making their way into our screens. 
And I think that's definitely one of the reasons for more than half of uh, Canadians to say that the that there is indeed a decline of civility. Interesting. What do they blame for that? Well, the number one thing uh, is parents. Eighty-four uh, percent believe that mom and dad are not teaching their children proper behavior, and that is uh, responsible for the current state of civility that we have in Canada. But there were other things that were quite interesting. The influence of television and movies at 77%. Technology. We're not talking to each other face-to-face as much as we used to, and we're getting away with using e- uh, uh, other words um, through our smartphones, for instance, that we wouldn't use uh, when we're talking to somebody face-to-face. Uh, also, poor examples from celebrities, athletes, and other pol- uh, uh, public figures at 74%, politicians engaging in personal attacks. We are heading into the federal election, and there's going to be a lot of discussions about how that might be uh, one of the things that is influencing the way we are talking to each other. But there's also 66% who say, look, people are just too busy with their lives. I have to get to places. I have to get to work. I have to pick up my kids. Don't ask me to be nice and say please and thank you all the time. Really? So we're actually taking some of that responsibility on ourselves as well, saying, oh, yeah, I'm just too busy to be nice. (laughs) Well, what is fascinating about that one particularly is it's one of the highest rated uh, excuses, so to speak, for Generation X. So millennials are not likely to say I'm too busy. Baby boomers are not likely to say I I am too busy. If you're 35 to 54, you're more likely to say, I got a lot of stuff going on. I'm not going to take the time to get to know you or to be nice to you. I need to get from point A to point B. So, Hey, that's my generation, generation, Mario. Now I'm embarrassed because that's my generation. I know, generation. It's me too. You know, it, maybe it was all that Nirvana and Soundgarden that we listened to in the 90s. You know, we I are becoming know. a little bit nasty. Maybe we're just feeling like the sandwich generation, you know, that we're kind of squished in the middle here and we've got a lot going on. <laughs> well, that seems to be the case. I mean, this is one of the ones uh, that are up there. The lowest ranked one, and I think this is good news for teachers, uh, 59% believe that it's teachers in school who are failing to teach students proper behavior. But when you compare to 84% who say parents, teachers really come out uh, in favor of things, and they look very well when it comes to this particular issue. All right, so parents did not come out very well on this at all. No, it's it's quite fascinating because it, I think it has a lot to do with specific stages uh, that kids might go through. You know, there's a, a lot of situations where there's kids who are misbehaving in a specific area and, and you know, parents are saying, just let them be. It's fine. It's not a problem. Uh, but that can continue. And I think it's not necessarily about those kids who misbehave at a restaurant, for instance, that you always remember. It's also about specific ways in which you need to deal with people. And, and if there's this actual perception, particularly for those over the age of 55, that the kids are not behaving the same way that you used to many years yeah. ago, then the problem is directly related to the parenting and not necessarily to the kids or, or, or the media. I'm not surprised that technology was so high up there with 77%. I am a little surprised that kind of TV and movies is up there so high because I feel like every generation has complained about you know TV and movies corrupting our children. it's definitely part of it, but I think it has a little bit more to do with the way in which language has been portrayed. If you go back several decades, uh, there were very stringent guidelines for movies and certain words that you could use and certain things that you could say. And now we're at a situation where roughly every movie is going to be PG-13, whereas the same type of movie before probably would have been rated R. And that is one of the problems that I think we see here. It's the language that you're using. If you see uh, people in movies or on television uh, who are using those types of words that were rarely uttered in the media before, 
they start to creep in into your regular roster, and this is why kids are so uh, saying things that are making their their elders uh, a little bit more shocked than they would be. Yeah, that's so true, actually, when you put it that way, because, like, movies and TV have changed. There's it used to be, you're right, much more strict about what you could say or do on TV, and now it seems like anything goes. Well, and I think that's also part of the problem when it comes to technology. You know, you aren't really policing the airwaves the same way that you used to 10, 20 years ago. The same goes for social media. Uh, you know, one of the things that really shocked me about the findings is that there's almost half of millennials who say that they encounter somebody who is rude or impolite on social media every week. And it's the highest number. There's definitely other aspects of life where the situation is not as bad. I thought driving a car would be number one, but for millennials, it is, number, it is social media. You're more likely to face somebody who's going to be uh, impolite to you if you're on social media than if you're driving a car, which I found shocking. Yeah, what did the other generation groups say? Well, most of what happens is essentially driving a car or riding in a car. That is the moment when you face somebody who maybe caught you off and, and you know, did a gesture or yep. said something or honked the horn in a way that was not particularly polite. Uh, as, as expected, this is something that is happening more in the urban areas. As you move away from the cities, the way in which you deal with drivers tends to be different and the way in which you deal with others who are in the car seems to be different as well. So it's a situation where... If you're somebody who's a Generation Xer like us, uh, and, and you're busy and you're driving, you're more likely to be facing that little bit of road rage in that particular venue than if you're on social media or doing something else. And the other choices, as you pointed out there, it, it's like everyday stuff, right? It's uh, driving a car, riding in her, shopping at a store. 16% of people said that they've encountered rudeness shopping at a store, in the workplace, walking on the street, or even using public transit. That's just everyday stuff, Mario. Everyday stuff. You know, I, I was a little bit more surprised at how many people felt uh, that they were mistreated or that somebody was rude or impolite at the workplace. I think it's a, it has a lot to do with the generational changes. You know, there are new ways in which we are working. Uh, the old offices where everybody had four walls and was essentially protected from everything are gone. Oh, now you have a lot true. of cubicles. You have a lot of people who are in close proximity to each other and maybe saying things that they probably would have said within the confines of an office in the 1960s or 1970s. But now that is something that is said and is heard by everybody. And this is one of the reasons why they're reporting that somebody at the office was impolite, maybe not directly to them. But if they're talking about something that is making you uncomfortable in an open setting with cubicles, you're going to notice. So true. Mario, thank you very much for this. My pleasure to be anytime. Appreciate that. That is Mario Canseco, president of the research company. You know, I'd have to say this is probably the best series of future of work that we have ever done because day after day when we talk about these stories, we're illustrating amazing industries that clearly have a lot of opportunity for people out there. I mean, earlier today we were talking about being an elevator technician and how the demand is so great for that. I remember last week on the show, we talked about getting into the railway business. Uh, the railway engineer program at BCIT, basically you can just walk in, they're ready, six-week program, boom, you walk out, hired right away, and you're making like, you know, $60,000 to start with, and it's a great job. And now here we are again. We have another addition for you, and this time we're taking a closer look at a career in marine engineering. And once again, BCIT is the primary provider of accredited professional training for the maritime industry in Western Canada. We are going to learn all about this with the help of Jeff Otto, who's the co-op education coordinator for the BCIT Marine Program. Hi, Jeff. 
Hi, Siri. Hi, good. I'm very good. Thank you. So tell me, uh, what is a job in marine engineering? Like, what does it require? Uh, marine engineers require uh, a background, a little bit of a background in math and physics, uh, and obviously an affinity to work in a hands-on environment because they're taking care of the ship's propulsion plant and auxiliary systems. So they would be the individuals on board the ship to make sure that uh, the ship's propulsion plant is working, the ship's electrical distribution is happening, and all the systems are working. So they're kind of one step ahead of things falling apart. Okay, is there a lot of demand in this industry right now? Tons of demand, actually. Um, and it comes across the board, whether it be the cruise ship industry, um, bulk carriers on the Great Lakes, BC ferries locally, uh, the Canadian Coast Guard. So a lot of demand, quite honestly. I think the industry has seen a huge retirement glut, like much, I think, that your previous the uh, guests have indicated. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. So that's happening. And then, of course, you know, when you start seeing... Uh, the National Shipbuilding Initiative come down the pipe in the last little while. Right. A lot of the senior engineers will be taking from the ships and work in the shipyards to manufacture the vessels. So that just puts a bigger strain on the shipping companies, quite honestly. Okay, so you need people. Desperately, yes. Oh, desperately. Whoa, yes. okay. So what is the program like? Uh, the program itself is four years in length, and it alternates between uh, full-time academic terms at the BCIT Marine Campus in North Vancouver. Uh, and then there's sea phases or placements aboard ships that can go anywhere from three to three to five months. Um, so we see our students, like I said before, go out on oil tankers, bulk carriers, uh, work with BC ferries, work with uh, companies like Princess Cruise Lines, um, just a, a wide variety of uh, vessels around the world, quite honestly. And what's the pay like? Um, the pay as, as a trainee is very poor, quite honestly. They get paid about $1,000 a month, but they don't have to worry about costs like rent and they, they get a berth in the ship. But when they get their first license after the third year, they're, they're making up to about uh, $10,000 a month. I'm sorry, $10,000 a month. That's correct, yes. Okay, but what's the catch? Um, there's yeah, always a catch, There's Jeff. always a catch. Yeah. Um, basically, the marine engineers working on ships do have to be away from home and family, so they would be working and living in the ships sort of full-time. Um, however, companies like BC Ferries, you sail during the day and you're home at night kind of thing, right? So uh, they do make good money once they're licensed officers and get a full-time position. Right. So let's say you're just breaking, you're, you're young, you're unmarried, right? You got you don't want to pay rent. You don't want to you know pay for your car payment and all that. This, is, this would be a great opportunity for you to really save some money. Oh, for sure. And a chance to see different parts of Canada or the world that uh, you normally wouldn't see in a Monday to Friday, eight to four uh, job. So every one of those like big ships that we see out on the harbor, is there a marine engineer on board? You betcha, yeah. There's a number of different marine engineers from the chief engineer down to um, ERAs or oilers um, and, and the junior licensed officers as well too. So yes, every every ship would have marine engineers. So you have to also love being on the water, I would imagine. You do, yes. There, You have to be, well, again, willing to be away from home and family for periods of time. Um, however, when you know the engineers do go away, like say, for example, Princess Cruise Lines, they're four on, two off. They're off for two months. So they have entirely four months off in a, in the calendar year uh, to do whatever they want. That's pretty good. But then you also have a lot of months on. So if, let's say you take a job on the cruise ships then. So are you, what are your hours like when you're working on board? Is it like 12 hours a day kind of thing? Uh, yeah, it could be 10 to 12 hours a day. That's why they give you the big expanses of time off kind of thing. Um, but they do give you a little bit of time off. And you, at, at times you will be able to get off the ship where they go off to different ports. So um, you, you get a chance to sort of see the world as well. It sounds kind of glamorous. It, it is actually. Yeah, no, it was pretty Did good. you do this? Um, actually, my background is with the Royal Canadian Navy. I was a, oh. a navigating officer and I worked as a naval communicator when I first started. But uh, I, I did navigate ships and, and uh, did some time in the engine rooms as well, too. So I've seen seen that end of things as well. So for somebody who would like to apply to this program, what do they need to know? 
Um, what I think, requirements do they have to have? Uh, again, we're looking for a fundamental grasp of physics and math. You know, math at the math and physics at the grade eleven level. Um, completion of high school, and again, just the willingness to work with uh, their hands and around mechanical electrical systems and work as part of a team in an engine room to make sure a ship is, is running. So is there a lot of longevity in these jobs? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, what we see a lot of our students do is they, when they uh, attain the rank of chief engineer, they may come ashore and work in, in sort of um, um, you know, supervisory superintendent positions as well, too. So there's that kind of corporate office uh, position at the end of the the, the, the journey as well. And we do see uh, several of our students who uh, will upgrade with business courses and, and business programs to give them that background to get into the corporate office as well. So it's not just a trade where they stay on that trade level. Uh, there's the, the corporate office is a, a possibility as well. So where do you recruit from? Where do you go find people? Um, boy, we go anywhere. Uh, we, we, we go on to radio to, stations. We do, yes, like this, exactly, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, we, we visit a lot of high schools, go to career fairs. We have uh, BCIT has open houses from time to time. Um, yeah, we try to connect with uh, groups like the Sea Cadets and, and that sort of stuff, and, and, and also through through our employers too. Like our employers through that word of mouth piece is a really really good uh, um, avenue for recruitment. Uh, like for example, right now in the last couple of years, we're seeing a huge trend of BC Ferries um, uh, Oilers or ERAs coming to the program to get their licenses faster. So people coming to our program that actually do have a bit of experience as well. Really? Okay, this is, I find this so fascinating because it's one of those things that you don't really think about, but then you realize, yeah, somebody has to look after all of these ships out there. Uh, And I understand that recently you were talking about the government and new government programs. Um, There was something new introduced for BCIT as well, right? With Mark Garneau, the Minister of Transportation? Yes, on Tuesday, the Minister made an announcement through the Ocean Protections Plan, uh, but that was with respect to what's called a bridge watch program. Uh, So that's more working on the deck side or towards the navigation side. So um, a very cool initiative for us at BCIT to reach out to people in, in remote communities, uh, Indigenous peoples, uh, females and people that live in northern communities and Inuits, uh, to basically get them the opportunity to be introduced to the, the industry and hopefully pursue the path of um, perhaps switch over to marine engineering or become the captain of those ships kind of thing. So it's a, um, the, the monies will be put towards uh, us and Camosun College to run about three to five courses a year for the next three years. Um, to reach out to those communities to, to train up deckhands for vessels all across the BC coast. So what does it involve being a deckhand? How is that different from being a marine engineer? Yeah, on the deck side, it, it's more towards the navigation and the ship handling and the cargo operations kind of thing. Uh, not so much on the ship's propulsion side. Uh, so they would learn basic seamanship activities like um, boat work, anchors and cables and, and um, um, lines, that sort of stuff, or if they're towing, those sorts of evolutions on the upper deck, uh, the ship's maintenance and, and, and safe work practices and procedures, and steering the ship as well too kind of thing, and acting as a lookout and working with the bridge officers and the captain uh, to make sure the ship safely goes from A to B. So then do people often move around in the industry? Like maybe you start as a deckhand and you work your way up into other things? Oh, exactly. That's that's the the, the, the deckhand position really is the start, stepping stone to becoming a captain. And there's a number of steps that, that a person would have to take, um, courses they would have to take, sea time they would have to accumulate to, to become a captain ultimately. And that, that does happen. So do you do you have to apply to individual companies? Do you get hired on by the company or like how does that work? Um, usually what will happen in, in the uh, Bridge Watch programs is that uh, students may have a connection with a company already, uh, or we will try to give them a hand finding employment as well too. Um, you know, there's a fairly finite number of employers in the BC coast, like BC Ferries and, and some of the tug, tug industries like C-SPAN, Island Tug and Barge, uh, C-SPAN Ferries. So there's there's a 
the Canadian Coast Guard. So there's there's a sort of a finite number of employers. Right. They that, know where to look. They know where to look, exactly, yeah. yeah. So what are the chances of somebody going through this program, getting a job right out of the program? Uh, I think pretty good, actually. I think right now, again, BC Ferries uh, and the Canadian Coast Guard, they're, they're seeing a, a big demand for, for deckhands. Um, and sometimes uh, in the northern communities, uh, the, the employers have difficulty finding people there. So it's a, this program is very, very timely and very uh, uh, appropriate for the needs of the, the marine industry. All right. So then if people need more information, where should they go? Uh, they could check out our website at uh, www.bcit slash marine. And I think that'll get them to all our marine programs. Uh, yeah, for sure. Wow. You guys are busy, right? Is there we, anything we BCIT are. doesn't do? I think we do a little bit of everything. I actually. think you I do no, too. No yeah, yeah. yeah. We were talking yeah. about elevators the other day and that was like another great line of work and the railway engineers and BCIT is where you're going to find it all. Listen, thank you so much, Jeff. Thank you very much. Appreciate the time. That is Jeff Otto, the co-op education coordinator for BCIT's marine program where they also need people. Hey, remember this story in the news today? It's been getting a lot of attention the last couple of days, actually. That case of the person who wanted to back out of buying a Shaughnessy mansion because they discovered that a murder had taken place there. Well, that appeal was thrown out of court. And so there's a a lot in there to unpack for both buyers and sellers. So we thought... Why don't we talk to an expert about this? So that's why we've turned to Jordana Citronbaum, who's a litigator with Wet Law Twining, and she joins us to talk about what happened in this case and what it means for buyers and for sellers. Jordana, thank you so much for joining us thank on you for this today. Me. Uh, so, do I need, as a seller, to tell somebody? Am I obligated to tell them that oh, there was a murder on my property? Well, that depends. Uh, if you're asked specifically if there was a violent death or murder, then yes, you absolutely have to tell the truth. But if nobody asks you, you're not required to list it on the property disclosure statement. And I would say you don't have to volunteer it. I guess the question for that is like, do people actually ask you that? Like if you're going to an open house, do you ask the real estate agent, was somebody ever murdered here? Well, I had a chance to ask a couple of my realtor friends and they say that they've fortunately never had to ask that question. So it doesn't seem to be on the minds of most people. But is it now because of this story? You said you're looking for a house yourself. Are you going to be asking that question? Uh, You know, I might. I just might. Yeah, it is on my mind. That is... That's pretty funny. I would imagine if you're a realtor, you'd be like, well, what? Okay. This is an unusual case here, but what did it tell us? Like, what did it really change? It doesn't, in short, it doesn't really change anything. It affirms what I would say are basic first principles, which relate to what has to be disclosed and what the reasonable limits of disclosure are. And we can kind of unpack that in the course of our discussion. Yeah. So what happened in this case here? So here you have a property in Shaughnessy um, that was quite an elaborate mansion. It had a swimming pool, it had 10 bathrooms, and it was listed um, for just over $6 million. And um, it sold for 6.1 shortly before closing. The buyer found out that the property was the site of a murder and felt that that was withheld from her, that the answers given as to why the seller was selling were false and tried to back out of the deal. Okay. And in the first round, the buyer won. Is that right? In the first round, the seller, sorry, the buyer won. That's right. She got out of the deal. And the Court of Appeal, um, in its decision that came out on the 23rd, said, no, this was not a circumstance um, that would have given the buyer an out. Why not? Well, um, let me just go back a little bit. And so we talk about what happened and the exchange between the parties. And so the buyer had asked what the seller's reason for moving was. 
and the seller volunteered that her granddaughter had or would be recently moving schools from Shaughnessy to Collingwood over in West Vancouver. And for that reason, they would be moving. Um, She suggested that her granddaughter would be going to Collingwood because it would be a better opportunity for her to learn English, among other things. Now, the granddaughter's father was gunned down just outside of the property. And as it turns out, um, the school that she had been going to in Shaughnessy asked her to leave because they were concerned it was considered to be a targeted hit, that it might pose a safety concern to the school. So she was asked to leave. And so the buyer took the position that failing to disclose that ultimately the underlying reason for changing schools was related to the murder was withholding material information. Right. A safety issue is what the buyer was saying. That if that house was targeted, like you don't send change of address notifications to people in those situations. So how would they know that you'd moved? Right. Okay. So, and then the BC Court of Appeals said, no, you don't need to disclose this. That's right. So at the trial level, it was framed as being one of two things, either a latent defect. So that's something wrong with the property that makes it potentially dangerous or not habitable. And then the second issue was that by not disclosing the fact of the murder, that that was a misrepresentation by omission and that that was designed to conceal, so fraudulent. At the Court of Appeal, the issue of whether it was a latent defect, that wasn't challenged. And so it turned on whether not volunteering the fact of the murder amounted to a misrepresentation. And the Court of Appeal ultimately said, no, it didn't. Because, and the reasoning is rather lengthy, but because in essence, the fact that she was moving schools was true. And it was the primary Uh. motivator. Um, that she had been asked to move schools. She was, in fact, going to Collingwood in West Vancouver. And but for the change in schools, the seller would not have moved and would not have put the property up for sale. So is the original buyer still on the hook then for this property? So the buyer, um, it's going to be remitted back to the trial court to determine the, the, the amount um, that the buyer will have to pay as a result of damages. And the seller ended up, after the buyer made it clear that she wasn't going to close, the seller ended up selling the property to another purchaser for about $600,000 less. Right. Okay. So there's still some details to be worked out. So then what is the obligation? Like, how many crimes do you have to tell? Like, if somebody broke into your house, do you have to tell that? If you think your house is haunted, do you have to tell that? Like, what do you have to tell? Well, you have to disclose something that's considered to be a latent defect. And so that is something about the property Um, that can't be reasonably discovered on an inspection that might make the property dangerous or potentially dangerous or that might make it uninhabitable. So I suppose if you had a scenario where the house was subject to repeated targeted criminal activity, I could see that you might perhaps be able to... Like numerous break-ins, let's say. Well, I think it would have to be more than that. but, Uh But... um, the the issue is whether it can be reasonable reasonably discovered through an inspection. And here there had been a lot of media coverage. And so all she had to do was look up the address and she would have been able to um, find a media so report true. that would have told her about it, right? So does this happen very often? Like, has this happened before that you can think of? Well, it hasn't happened in a case that I've been involved in or, or one in recent history in Vancouver, but the case itself refers to a couple of quite extreme cases. Um, One of them is from England, where in the 80s, there was a murder. A child had been dismembered and parts of the body hidden around the house. 
years later, a couple buys the house and finds out that this had happened and were horrified. And they went to their lawyer because it hadn't been disclosed on the property disclosure statement. And the lawyer said to them, look, they didn't have an obligation to tell you. It doesn't fit in with one of the categories. And when you sell it, you won't have to either. Except now everybody knows. Well, yeah, so they sold it. And the subsequent buyers learned that the house had been the site of this murder through a documentary and tried to get out. And the Uh. Court of Appeal in that case came to a similar conclusion, which is if there's something important to you about a house, something that relates to superstitions or to your likes or dislikes, to religious beliefs or otherwise, and it's up to you as the buyer to ask those questions and to satisfy yourself that the house meets your needs. So then you're obligated to ask the other realtor at an open house, have there been any murders here? If it's important to you. Have there been any hauntings at this house? Has anything <laughs> really terrible? Ha- like, so you, I have to ask those questions then if I want to find out about it. Exactly. Okay. Does that happen in your experience? Not very often. <laughs> so that's the problem though, I think, right? Is that we don't think about that when we see a house that we like. And then by the time we find out, often it's too late. That's right. And, and then the question really is whether the horrible act that happened affects objectively the use or the value of the home. And that really becomes part of the threshold of whether or not you're obliged to disclose it. Right? I guess the value is the key there as well. Like if you think you're getting a good deal, there's probably a reason for that. Possibly. And there's there's a Latin maxim, and it's called caveat emptor, which means buyer beware. Right. And so it doesn't relieve people of um, the ability to tell the truth, but at the same time, it's the purchaser's onus to satisfy themselves that the property meets their needs, right? And even on the property disclosure statement, if you take a look at it, you can download it off um, off the internet, it tells you that the property disclosure statement is really only the starting point and that a prudent buyer should make their own inquiries, should satisfy themselves by doing whatever inspections they think might be appropriate, including possibly retaining some kind of a licensed professional. So whether that's um, an engineer or an electrician Whatever the case may be, clairvoyant, uh, whatever, possibly, whatever the yeah. case, whatever if you want to go check that out too. But I was serious because we were talking about that today. That people, there's, you know, there's certain houses that are quite famous or infamous. Uh, we were talking about a couple houses in Vancouver where, you know, Eve Lazarus puts out a book and you realize that that's where this murder happened. That that's where this incredible murder happened, and nobody knew that for 40, 50 years living there. And I mean, who's to say? Because this is not typically something that gets taken into account on evaluation or an appraisal. Who's to say whether it, the notoriety might increase? The- value <laughs> Always looking at the positive. Jordana, yeah. thank you so much for your thank time you on for this. Having me. Appreciate that. That's Jordana Citronbaum, a litigator with White Law Twining, talking about uh, what you need to know. What are you obligated to tell somebody if you are selling your house and what can you ask if you are buying a house?